Hi guys, it's Dr. Cassie back again with a great podcast episode, Nutritional Truths, sponsored in part by Hills Pet Nutrition. Should dogs eat a high protein diet? Can dogs and cats effectively digest carbohydrates? This talk will explore alternative ways to address myths in the area of carbs and protein. Our guest today is Dr. Mike Robbins, the Scientific Communications Specialist with Hills Pet Nutrition. He earned his DVM at the University of Tennessee where his interest in clinical nutrition began. He then pursued a small animal rotating internal medicine and surgery internship at Blue Pearl in Louisville, Kentucky. From there, he spent two years completing his residency program in small animal clinical nutrition at North Carolina State University. With that, Dr. Robbins, over to you. Welcome listeners. My name is Dr. Mike Robbins. I am a board eligible nutritionist with Hills Pet Nutrition. And today I wanted to talk to you all about some common myths and misconceptions that I believe the veterinary profession hears a lot and a little bit how to address them potentially more effectively with, with clients. So it's, it's not really, I think, a secret that that a lot of clients come in with this misinformation. The digital age is out there. We have, they can Google anything. And we all know Dr. Google doesn't filter these results or those search results all that well. So you can have your neighbor coming in with information from a blog, from their neighbor, from someone in their family. And it it turns out that it may have come from someone who seems to be well-respected within the nutrition community, but when you look a little bit further, they're not. And it's not even uncommon for veterinarians and veterinary staff to sort of these myths and misconceptions sort of beaten into their brain so much that they start to question their, their teachings. So today, again, I think we need to go in to how best to remove that myth or misconception from their brain and replace it with truth. And again, a more hopefully easier way for these owners to to take this information instead of the veterinary staff just telling them, you know, this, this isn't, that's not correct, listen to what I say, or beating them down with so much scientific information that it just turns their brains off. So a lot of these owners, again, while they may hold some strong views, many of them tend to be open to veterinary recommendations. And I think that's another really important point to to hit home is we need to focus on the undecided majority, not the unswayable minority. You're going to have those people who are very set in their ways. And even with your degree and your training, they're going to believe some blogger who made the nutrition sound extra sexy online or in some YouTube video. So again, don't focus, don't don't waste a lot of your time on them. Really go for those who seem to be more open. Again, these pet parents tend to be really overwhelmed with this nutrition information. So it's, it's really important to provide well-searched or well-researched information, but again, in a more presented in a more strategic approach. So really, I think the first step is to engage the client and try to understand why this particular topic is important to them, their interest in hearing more, sort of gauging that. If they're not willing to hear more about it, they don't want to hear what you have to say, it's probably not worth your time, at least at that point in time, to really try to engage them further. And then it's also, I think, important to, to realize where they get their information or ask them where they tend to get their information most frequently because they, again, they might be very open to your 
recommendations and your expertise, but it's not always that easy just to call into your vet and ask, hey, what do you think about high protein in these diets? Or what do you think about raw food? Because you're busy. You're, you have a business. You're, you're seeing patients. Uh, you're in the middle of procedures and whatnot. And, and it's a heck of a lot easier for them to get on Dr. Google and search something and try and sift through that. So again, it's really important to sort of just get a, a basic understanding of where they're coming from. And then I think the biggest, one of the biggest things we need to change as a veterinary community is to really emphasize the facts and not the myths. For example, carbs are bad. That's the myth, right? You don't want to come into a discussion and start off with that. If the client says, you know, I don't really want to feed carbs because I've heard they're bad. And you as the veterinary professional says carbs aren't bad. Again, that's starting with the myth. We need to change the way we talk about this and say, you know, carbs actually provide and go down the list. So there's a subtle difference. It's, it's not, again, it's, it's not very not a very big difference, but it's a subtle difference in how we address that. Again, we didn't start off with the myth. We started off with the fact. And, and we need to keep these explanations as simple and to the point as possible, which is easier said than done, especially as many of us in the veterinary community. I mean, we're very scientific based. Obviously, that's that's what uh, the majority of our degrees were in. And a lot, I think a lot of times we very much appreciate the, the scientific background on it and really delving in. Here's this study and here's this study to support it. But pet parents, I think we're in an era where science isn't necessarily as sexy as it, as it used to be. So again, keeping it to the point as possible. And then if you can use supporting visuals, use as many of those as, as possible. And again, provide an alternative explanation for that myth. If you need to repeat the myth, start off with the disclaimer. So again, going back to that carb example, instead of saying carbs are not bad, you sh another way to reword that could be, you may have heard some incorrect information about carbohydrates and then go from there. And then really, again, it's I think we really need to harp home on the fact that it's focusing on those people who are open to listening and not those who are closed off. But really removing that myth, it, it sort of leaves a gap in that client's mind and needs to be filled with some specific fact, not generalizations. So again, I think that was a good sort of step into the this discussion on a couple myths that I think are important, again, because we need to discuss a better way of talking about them with our clients, because what we're doing, we're losing right now, I think, is a veterinary profession, and we're losing to the internet, and we need to, we need to do something different. So the two myths that I and misconceptions I wanted to discuss on this podcast with you all are really on protein and on carbohydrates. So let's start off with, with protein. I think we there have been a couple companies out there that have done a very, very good job of marketing, ancestral diets, raw diet, etc. We don't need to name any names, but they've done a great job of appealing to the, the pet parents and, and wanting them to feed, again, these high protein, these ancestral diets. Your dog's a wolf. They should eat like a wolf. Your cat is, is like that lynx or whatnot that came from the wild to the wild. They, they need to eat just strict protein and no carbs. And again, that's why I wanted to also discuss carbs because I think this fits in with that. Let's get into protein. A lot of these, there's some companies out there that have done a really good job of marketing and trying to push these ancestral diets that high protein is needed for a healthy dog and a healthy cat. And there's not really a lot of science to back that up, but really protein 
quantity is is just the tip of the iceberg. More meteor aspect uh, or aspect of this is is really quality and bioavailability. And what do I mean by that? Protein quality is really assessing the level of essential amino acids in that protein source. And there's a common again misconception that animals have a protein requirement, and it's not really that. It's it's they have a an essential amino acid requirement. The rest of their body can take over and make amino acids from additional essential amino acids. So the non-essentials can be made from those. And and again, those non-essentials can be used for other things. But those essential amino acids are the ones that our bodies cannot make by themselves. So we have to take them in by diet. Same for dogs and cats. So that's quality. Then bioavailability, we talk about how easily your body can digest, absorb, and utilize those amino acids. And one of the big examples I like to give is a rawhide, a really, really high in protein treat, but it's it's not very digestible. So even though you, on paper, you're feeding a lot of protein to your dog with a rawhide, they're not able to really absorb a lot of that protein. So they're not utilizing it. So you're actually doing a disservice. So I think that's one of the really big things we need to pay attention to as a veterinary community is that number that's on the bag doesn't really tell us a whole lot of information, unfortunately does give us some because yes, protein quantity. I mean, if you have a severely protein restricted diet and you don't know that there are really high essential amino acids in there or high level of essential amino acids, it could be a, a poor quality diet in general. And then I think that sort of leads us into the discussion of protein and renal disease. Um, obviously, renal therapeutic renal diets are either restricted in protein or low in protein. And there are some people out there, even vets, that's included, who think that these diets are too low and actually are detrimental to our pet's health. What I would say is the the larger companies who I think have the resources to look at the actual amino acid levels of, of those diets and, and really have the, the staff and the knowledge behind it, behind that nutritional need, understand that when you have a lower protein quantity, we need to make sure that the quality is above and beyond. And many of these, again, the larger companies, if you call them, are able to tell you that they do make sure that those diets have well over the AFCO requirement for essential amino acids. Again, to, to make sure that these animals or who likely need a lower protein, especially if they've been in uremic crises before, who do need this lower protein, we're not doing a disservice to them by feeding them this lower protein. We're making sure that they have that essential amino acid that's needed. And Hills has actually done a couple of studies on their KD diet in both dogs and cats. So K, the KD diet is our kidney diet or renal, our therapeutic renal diet. And we've actually looked at both dogs and cats being fed this diet and then evaluated their muscle mass using DEXA scans. And all the studies that we've had, most of them, so the study times ranged from four to about eight months of feeding, either found stable muscle mass or increased muscle mass. And that's, again, one of the, the really big things that these opponents of controlled protein diets or lower protein diets worry about is they, they're worried that their animals are going to be muscle wasted. There there have been a couple of studies out there that look at commercial diet to, to renal diet. And honestly, those are probably the best design studies when you're comparing these animals with kidney disease. And we know that 
a renal diet is superior to a commercial over-the-counter high-protein diet, especially in CKD. Going off of that and without delving too deep, there's other aspects of renal diets that are also important. And it's not just the protein. Again, we have phosphorus, omega-3 fatty acids, buffering capacities in the diet, usually very high energy density and whatnot. So with renal disease, it's not always just as simple as protein. There are a lot of other things involved, but I think it's really important that clients understand this for renal disease if their animal's been diagnosed, that they do need a lower protein diet. But if you're choosing one of these specifically formulated ones, that they these animals are are getting adequate essential amino acids, which is the important part. Then we go into looking at, so high protein and what it does, let's say in a well or a healthy animal. High protein, so there've been a couple studies looking at high protein, which is about 40% on a dry matter basis. And they looked at the colonic postbiotics as well as the bacterial populations. There was one study that, that looked at a high protein raw diet fed to dogs and what it did to the GI microbiome. And I think this microbiome is going to be something that's going to be taking off for years. Now it's, it's really a hot topic. But what they found was these changes with the microbiome were similar to what they see in dogs with IBD and acute diarrhea. Now that's not to say that there's a causative agent by no means, but it does, it is something I think warrants some concern. If the animals aren't able to, if you, if you provide a really high protein diet and the small intestinal tract isn't able to absorb all that protein, it, it goes to the colonic bacteria and then they utilize it. And we can again affect those, those GI microbes potentially in a negative way. There are some internal hill studies that we've shown not raw diets, but again, just high protein diets. And we're, we're talking about 40, about 40% dry matter that, that decrease this beneficial or some of the beneficial bacteria like bifidobacterium, provitella, and I always have a hard time pronouncing this one, but it's Bacteriaum, And there were others that they found that, that decreased with this high protein diet. In addition to, to decreasing these beneficial bacteria with this high protein diet, they're also in, seeing an increase in potentially pathologic bacteria like Clostridium and Streptococcus. They also see these postbiotics, and this is something that, that human medicine is dipping their toes into a little bit and Hills has with our GO, GI biome diet, is really those postbiotics, the things that are created, the molecules and substrates that are created after the bacteria has a chance to utilize the substrates within the colon. And these high-protein diets, they've seen that these postbiotics, there's some negative or potentially negative postbiotics that are significantly increased in these animals, such as indole sulfates and other uh, postbiotics that can be linked to inflammation and even kidney disease. Again, we haven't, this is by no means causation, and we don't really know the overall effects on total body health. It hasn't really been established at this time, but I think as years go by, we'll learn a heck of a lot more. But again, something just to pay attention to. Is a high-protein diet necessary? No, I, I really don't think so in a lot of cases, for, especially for healthy animals. So that's a little bit about protein. So again, is, is high protein, is this ancestral diet really, really needed? No, it's not. So going to clients, talking to clients, they come in and say, you know what, this diet seems like it doesn't have as, as high protein. I think a good, again, understanding why they think that's important, talking to them about that, where they're getting this information, and then delving into the fact that, you know, protein quality or protein quantity isn't the whole story. It's really about the essential amino acids and you can't get that off the bag. Additionally, your dog or cat can only 
absorb so much protein. And when that excess protein goes into their large intestine, there's a potential chance that it could have some detrimental health effect. So again, I think that's a, an easier way, simple, quick way to, to approach that with owners. And if they want to know more, obviously, you can delve in more on that. With that, I think move into carbohydrates. Carbohydrates, especially I think even in humans, uh, in human health, is turning out to be they're the, the, the new bad guy. I think fats were probably the bad guy when I was younger, and now it seems like carbohydrates are the bad guy. Plenty of friends who are trying to do low-carb diets, keto diets, stuff like that, and I just have to roll my eyes at them. But really, where, where did this stem from, and why is it in dogs and cats? Again, I think it could be twofold, either coming from the fact that our diets, we're thinking that carbs are bad in the Atkins diet. So we want to push that on our, we think what's good for them or what's good for us is good for them. Not always the case because humans aren't dogs or cats and they're not us, vice versa. The other area it could have come from is maybe the gluten, sort of that gluten uh, issue that we had with, with human medicine and celiac disease and that potentially bleeding over to our veterinary patients or our, our pet. And it's not really founded. And again, going into that ancestral thing, well, dogs or wolves probably didn't eat a whole lot of carbohydrates. That's what people say. And cats didn't eat a lot of carbohydrates as well. So why do we need that in this food? And it's killing our pets. And that's not really, the science is not there to prove that. So dogs and carbohydrates. There was a great study that these researchers looked in the genome of both dogs and wolves. And they found a good number of differences within the, the genome. And I believe 10 of those differences were with regards to starch digestion and fat metabolism. And what they ended up finding is wolves actually are pretty good at digesting and utilizing carbohydrates. And guess what? Dogs are even better at it. Just from us domestic, the human species domesticating dogs from wolves, they've gotten even better at digesting carbohydrates. And wolves were never bad either. And, and that's, I think, one of the really big misconceptions is that wolves didn't eat a lot of carbohydrates. And that's not true. It depends on the time of year, what was available and whatnot. So right off the bat, we know that, that dogs are able to utilize carbohydrates and even their ancestral wolves are very readily and are very good at utilizing those carbohydrate sources as, as energy. Cats and carbs, that's a little bit of a different story because you do look at what the ancestral cat diet was and, and it was very little carbohydrate. The problem is, or I guess the, the flip side on this is, there have been plenty of studies to look at how well cats can utilize carbohydrates and it's almost as efficient as dogs and humans are. They do a great job as long as they are cooked starch sources. I and mean, that's really the important thing, but I don't think many cats are over here probably chewing on a raw piece of lettuce or, <laughs> or something like that. So we don't really have to worry about that. These kibble foods and these canned foods, these, that process cooks those carbs and these cats can utilize them really well. I guess the more studied people will say, you know, cats are lacking certain enzyme activities, so we expect them to become hyperglycemic, and, and that could lead them to having diabetes or these other problems. And in theory, yeah, that makes sense. It seems intuitive that that would make sense, but it's not the case. We haven't found that. Feeding cats high-carbohydrate diets or higher-carbohydrate diets, we, we don't see them become excessively hyperglycemic. There's another pathway that is somehow allowing them to 
take that glucose in their blood from the absorption from the GI tract and put it into glycogen stores efficiently. We don't know what that is yet. And I think that's that's where it's tough to really combat some of these people who come at you with the knowledge of the cats lacking a certain enzyme to allow them to handle glucose as efficiently as omnivores. But but again, we've there's studies to prove that that's not the case. And then there's, I think, a lot of people who talk about carbohydrates causing cancer and obesity and diabetes in both cats and dogs. And again, you look at the research and it's not supportive of that. The thought process sounds great, but it's, that's, that's, it's not the case. And I mean, for example, you think a thought process, so proteinuria in dogs and cats, what do you do for proteinuria? In addition to potentially giving some medications, a lot of times, especially if you have someone who's really interested in a board certified nutritionist on staff or an internal medicine specialist who really likes nutrition, we know that decreasing the protein in their diet help decrease the amount of protein in the urine. To me, that doesn't, initially, intuitively, that doesn't make sense. To me, it would be, they're losing protein in their urine, let's feed them more protein. But really, it's the opposite. For me, that's a perfect example of how something that seems very common sense when said doesn't always fit what the body does. So these diabetic animals and and cancer, not linked to carbohydrates. Obesity specifically, really what they found out is if food is a source or kibble is a source, and in the particular studies that have have looked at this, it's usually these quote-unquote high premium or high quality foods. And what does that mean exactly? Well, there's no true definition, but a lot of times they're very high in in fat and energy density. And especially if you have a dog or a lab, I should say, they're going to want to nom up all that food that they can right there in that sitting. Just like me, especially if I'm bored. What do I do when I'm bored? I eat something. I need to snack on something. And I think our dogs and cats are probably the same. They're they're probably bored and they would eat a lot more than what we would give them. And sometimes we do end up giving them more because of their behavioral issues. Finding foods that are, in those cases of animals who potentially might be obese prone, finding a light food, one that has a little bit more fiber in it, would be really beneficial for them. So again, in those studies where you might see food, kibble, again, kibble tends to be the one that is demonized the most because the carbohydrates that need that's needed in kibble to maintain structural integrity of it. it the the studies that have shown that if it's related to kibble it's a lot of those diets tend to be high fat it's not really the carbohydrates diabetes is is really the same thing so first off for dogs dogs tend to have analogous type 1 diabetes in humans so their cells that create the insulin are being destroyed and whether that is a lot of these diabetic dogs tend to have pancreatitis we don't know if that's chicken or the egg what's going on but it, it's something to pay attention to so carbohydrates really don't play a part in destruction of those cells that to me just never made sense cats on the other hand might make a little bit more sense again because we talk about them potentially be or, or those, again, who are more well-studied in biochemistry talk about the enzyme that cats lack, which is glucokinase, theoretically would make them or cause them to be hyperglycemic and then have reduced insulin sensitivity. Again, as I had mentioned before, the studies don't show that. They're actually very well able to handle those that carbohydrate load and that that blood glucose spike again that usually our body keeps it within a very tight range and and they're able to do that really well what studies these sort of epidemic i guess if you put them all together um, all these studies together 
when you look at the root causes for these, it's really inactivity, neuter status, and again, really high energy density foods that really predispose animals to obesity and diabetes. Again, not the carbohydrates. And then cancer and carbohydrates. There's no, even in human medicine, even in human, human medicine where it's been, I think, more extensively studied, carbohydrates don't feed cancer. That's not how necessarily how it works. Yes, cancer cells tend to utilize glucose as, a, as an energy source more readily. And yes, they are using it a lot. But there's a lot of other cells in your body that still need glucose. And your body's not, whether that glucose comes from carbohydrates or it comes from protein, comes from fat, your body's still going to maintain a blood glucose level. So you're not going to continuously feed this cancer by feeding carbohydrates. And, and I think that's really important. I actually had owners in my residency who felt extremely guilty for giving their dogs like biscuits, treats, because they thought that they were killing them by feeding the cancer. And this, this needs to stop because carbohydrates can provide easy source of energy, a quick source of energy for our cancer patients. And that is honestly, if you talk to, I would say nine out of 10 veter uh, boarded veterinary nutritionists are going to say that their nutritional aspect of a patient with cancer is to make sure that they maintain their lean muscle mass and their body weight. And it doesn't matter if that's coming from carbs, protein, or fat. So hopefully... Those have been, again, two probably more, uh, two myths or misconceptions that are more on the forefront. And again, the, the little bit that we talked about in the first part of this podcast on how to more efficiently address this with pet owners and even potentially colleagues who might have these misconceptions. Hopefully this was enlightening for you all and I wish you all the best. Well, guys, I hope this talk has been as informative and helpful for you as it was for me. With so much nutritional information available to pet owners on the internet, it's important for us to understand the science of nutrition so we can help pet owners sift through all the information and gain valuable nutritional knowledge to keep their pets happy and healthy. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on this podcast as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear me cover in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com or on Facebook at Dr. Cassie DVM. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.